Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, I am glad that you guys are here in the house. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for those of you who are out on the backstage patio and for joining online today. If you have your Bibles or your devices, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Colossians, uh, New Testament. Uh, after the Gospels, we have Acts, First and Second Corinthians, and then we have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and the last of that group of letters is a little book that we're going to call a letter called Colossians. And over the course of the next four weeks, we're actually going to study, kind of go on a deep dive um, into the book of Colossians in this letter, uh, and we're going to discover a little bit about why. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter and why, uh, what was going on in kind of the church that he wrote it to back in the first century. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can do that today as uh, we won't be going verse by verse, but we will be going kind of section by section. And so Justin and I are teaching this message series. He and I are writing it together, studying it together. And man, what a joy it is to have um, him uh, there and on staff, and we're loving doing this, and, and I hope that you and that we as a church would gain from and benefit from this, this amazing letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Now, um, while you're getting your Bibles to Colossians, uh, I'm going to also ask you to take out a, a dollar bill. If you have a dollar bill, uh, you get in your wallet, purse, uh, you know, backpack, whatever you brought in today, uh, and grab a dollar bill. Uh, if you don't have a dollar, you can find a 20 if you have a 20, you can pass it to me, all right? So, no, just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, so, this is a dollar bill that um, I left mine in the office before I came over here today. Uh, and so, I asked Justin for this dollar bill. So, full disclosure, everybody, full disclosure, um, this is Justin's $1 bill. All right, keep me accountable. All right, I owe him a dollar. I'm going to keep it until the Tennessee-Georgia game in a few weeks, and then we'll see what we do with that. So, anyway, uh, so... I don't know about you, when you pull out a dollar bill or any denomination or any kind of bill, most of us, um, we can look at it and we can feel it, and if it's an obvious fake, if it's an obvious counterfeit, we may know it, but by feeling it, by looking at it, by taking a glance at it, we don't necessarily know if this is an original, if this is actually a $1 bill, or if this is a counterfeit. There's an organization in the United States, uh, it's called the Secret Service. Some of you guys know the Secret Service, and most of us know the Secret Service as the group of people that protect who? The president and important officials in the United States and heads of state uh, that come into the United States from other countries. But did you know that the Secret Service got started during the Civil War when the Confederacy was printing counterfeit money? and putting it up north into the uh, economic currency and economic system. And the reason that they were doing that, and the reason that counterfeit money is sometimes put into the system today, is because it can bring down a whole economy if done in large scale, if it's done large scale enough. So the Secret Service exists to identify and to mitigate and to eliminate a, a huge amount of counterfeit money from coming into the United States because if we allow too much counterfeit money into the United States, it can bring our whole economic system down. And some of you are like, when did that must have just happened, right? Yeah, it must have happened recently. So their job is to ensure that this 
is the genuine thing. And if it's not the genuine thing, their job is to find out where it came from and to go after those who have printed counterfeit money. You know, it's so interesting because those uh, officials and those agents and some who work with banks and some who work in, in counterfeit, anti-counterfeit organizations, they are trained to know a counterfeit from a genuine bill, a counterfeit from a, a genuine currency. And part of the way that they know that is they can feel the fiber. They can look at, and in today's day and age, there's watermarks and there's, uh, uh, there's actually uh, like different numbers uh, and that sort of thing that they know and they can see and they can check. But most people who are experts in counterfeit money know it just by the feel of it and just by a simple look. Where you and I may think that this is just a counterfeit $1 bill and it may be the real or vice versa. They know it because they study in and out the genuine thing. They study the real thing. You know, I think that there's a lot of parallels for us spiritually. You see, we can take our faith and we can have faith in Jesus and we can have this moment where we believe in him as our savior and if we're not careful in our lives we will mistake a counterfeit faith for the real thing and it happens very subtly and very slowly and very quietly in our lives and just like those secret service agents, just like those who work in, in counter, uh, counter counterfeit uh, uh, organizations, our job is to know the real Jesus, to know the real thing, and to live the real way, and to be in his word, and understand his word, and stay connected with him so much that when something in culture, or when something in our world, some kind of philosophy comes along, that we may like or ism that we may kind of feel connected with or it might make more sense or it might be something that we like a little bit better than God's word, the Bible. We need to know the real thing to make sure that we're preventing the fake thing, the counterfeit thing from coming into our lives. The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament and started all these different churches. This church was, was a church that was uh, situated in a city that was located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, he, he wrote uh, all of these little letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. He wrote them to these churches that were established in these areas of ancient, what is now Turkey, really, and, and it, up towards Istanbul, kind of on the way from Jerusalem and the Holy Lands over to Rome. And he's writing this letter to a church that was a great group of people. It was a group of believers that took seriously their faith. They took seriously the things of God. They were like on it for the kingdom of God. They were into the church and they were into the things of the church. But the one who started this church, his name was Epaphras, had visited Paul in prison. He was the one who had started this church in Colossae. And he reported back to Paul that these believers in Colossae are faithful. They're wonderful people. But there's beginning to be in the church and in the culture isms and beliefs and thoughts and lifestyles that are counterfeit. That are not the real thing. And so Paul writes this letter essentially to say to this church, to the Colossians, hey guys, great job, but be careful. 
great job, but be warned. Great job, keep going in your faith, but you need to watch out for these things. And I don't know about you, when I stop and think about it, that, that's a lot like our church. That's a lot like the modern day church. It's a lot like us, like on fire for Jesus, like really understanding what Jesus did when he died on the cross, died for our sins, rose again three days later, took our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. But you know what? If we're not careful, church, we're going to let these little things begin to erode our faith. And what Paul was warning this church about is you got to be careful to not let the counterfeit things of the world to ruin your faith and thus ruin the way that you live a life lived for the glory of God. Let's dive in, and today what we're going to do is we're going to take this in bits and pieces, and so some of this I'll summarize, some of this first chapter uh, we're going to just plain on skip. I want to encourage you to be at Roots Wednesday night if you want to dig in more, if you want to find out more, we've got a group uh, of people that meet over there in the community center at uh, 6 o'clock from 6 to 7.30, and, and they go deeper into this, and I want to encourage you, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, to be a part of Wednesday night and be a part of Roots. Now, Paul jumps out of the gate, and, and in verses 1 through 8, I'm just going to summarize it. Here's what he says. He addresses the Colossian church. He says, hey, I've heard about your faith in Jesus, and I'm thankful for your faith in Jesus, and I want to give thanks for that, and I want to pray for you, and I do pray for you, and, and, and he essentially addresses them and gives this salutation in this letter that says, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Keep on doing a great job. But then what he does in verse 9, and we're going to read essentially 9 through 23 in different bits and pieces today. What he does is he begins to very carefully and with grace and truth, and I'm going to come back to that theme in a few minutes. With grace and truth, Paul very carefully gets their eyes focused on some of these things about the culture and about the philosophies of the day that they were beginning to believe that was beginning to erode their faith. Here's how it begins, and he does this with a very thoughtful, thoughtful, grace-filled approach. He says this in verse 9. In light of giving thanks to them, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the, I want you to say that next word here in the house with me, with the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the, say it with me, the knowledge of God. He says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we can read between the lines, Paul is gently and very carefully and very intelligently leading the reader or the hearer of this letter to realize that they are buying into a philosophy of the day that was called Gnosticism. 
And the Gnostics were people who would, were, were in the area of Colossae and some of those other places, Colossae and some other places, and they were kind of trying to get into the church to sway the church to buy into a different viewpoint of Jesus. They did it very carefully. They were very crafty. They didn't come right out and say, you need to deny Jesus, but they came at him from a different angle, and they, they had this, this group of people who were Christians in this area. They had them thinking and, and beginning to question the deity of Jesus Christ. See, the Gnostics were all about knowledge. They wanted to fill their minds with as much knowledge as they could. It was kind of like the old adage, knowledge is what? Power. And they believed that. They believed that it was the goal in life to accumulate as much knowledge as possible. And Paul understood that. He understood that they were buying into the knowledge. Because let's face it, having knowledge is a lot of fun, right? It's something to show off. It's something to, to kind of display for people. When my kids are now, um, Sydney's in college, she's actually here today and uh, so she's 18 sean is 15 and when they were younger and we would have a conversation about a football i would say hey do you know about the leather of the football and how it was designed and why they did that and they go no they'd say no and i, and I would be happy to explain them because i love history and facts and information and i'd explain to them about the football and then you remember when hamilton was a big deal like we'd have conversation about hamilton and i would say hey do you know about hamilton and aaron burr and you know the connection with george washington and the revolution and i would start talking and they would probably not listen but anyway uh they would be hearing me talk and i would i would give them all my knowledge about a certain fact and um as they got a little bit older they figured this out and so i would say hey do you know why this shirt is colored blue do you know why it's blue and how it gets blue and they'd go yeah we know and I realized they were just saying yes to get me off their case, right? Just, I want to hear dad. I don't want to hear him talk. I mean, knowledge is powerful, isn't it? And so the Christians there were, they were buying into the Gnostics, not directly, but they were buying into them because they were kind of teaching them and training them that knowledge is the ultimate goal. And Paul realized that knowledge is something that we need and knowledge is important. But it's not the ultimate goal. Here's what Paul essentially was telling this church. He was saying to them that knowledge is not a collectible to be displayed, but a guide to be lived by. And so Paul was trying to get them to understand, and he was kind of presenting to them this chain of ideas that knowledge is not the ultimate goal, but godly knowledge and godly wisdom, and listen, church, spirit-filled truth is absolutely the goal, and it is what we are supposed to gain for the purpose of living, like verse 9 says, in a manner that's worthy of the calling of Christ. You see, the Gnostics were leading the, the people of God down a path that would lead them to a place where they denied Jesus was God. And you know, it's interesting, in our self-made, kind of self-indulgent, self-focused, like uber-ambitious, overly-ambitious, hyper-ambitious world, we kind of do the same thing. It's indirect, it's not quite in our thought, and it may not be in our philosophy, but we buy into it because of the practicality of what it is. It's all about us and me, reference last week's message, we talked 
a lot about that. The Gnostics would lead, they were trying to lead the people to believe that there was this secret knowledge that they needed to have in order to be saved. And that's not at all what Jesus came and taught and modeled, and actually he himself did. He died on the cross, rose again three days later, and he said, if you put your trust in me, if you put your belief in me, you can be saved. There was nothing secret about it, was there? He hung on a cross with everybody watching. He rose again from the dead. And by the way, when he came back to life, he appeared for 40, 40 days to over 500 people. And so Paul prays that the believer then and now would have knowledge of God's will through wisdom and understanding and that we would bear fruit in every good work because of that growing knowledge. And so he spends some time kind of positioning himself. And then in verses 15, beginning in 15, all the way through 20, I love this. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament. I love this. Colossians 15, 1, 15 to 20. Paul writes this in the letter. He says, by the way, I want you to notice how many times Paul uses, and if some of you write in your Bible or circle in your Bible like I do or highlight like I do, um, this is such good stuff because this points you to Jesus, which was what Paul was doing anyway. How many times he says he is or through him or in him because Paul is highlighting who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us. Check this out. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we're going to come back to that verse in a moment. But remember, the culture of the day was trying to pull them away from the fact that Jesus was God, or Jesus is God. The culture of the day was trying to pull them to a place where they denied the deity of Christ. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, speaking of Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, say that next word with me, he might be what? Preeminent. Preeminent. That means above all, before all, and through all, and by all. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to, pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with the, with the blood uh, of his cross. And by the way, in those five verses, Paul references so many different passages from the Old Testament. He just peppers them in in this great piece of poetry that he wrote about the preeminence of Christ. Essentially, what he's saying to the church then and the church now is he's saying Jesus is the one. Jesus is the real thing. He is the preeminent Christ. He is God. And armed with that knowledge, then he goes on to explain what that means to you and me. And we're going to learn that next week and the next week and the next week. 
but check out verses 21 through 23. He says, and you, here's the beginning of the implications that Christ is God. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, that body that was torn apart on the cross by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Part of the things that the Gnostics were saying to the church in Colossae was you have to be perfect and you have to be perfected to be saved. And he's saying that's not true. It's because of your faith in him. He's done all the work. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in your faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I think it's so interesting. I don't know about your church background. I don't know about your religious background. I don't know where you've come from. But there's a little peace of mind that was like, hey, if you're starting to believe something else, stop. Stop. Stop believing that thing. Stop it right now. (laughs) And there was a heavy-handed, stop believing this. Stop believing this. Stop believing this. Stop behaving this way. Stop behaving this way. But I'm going to be honest with you. There wasn't much behind that to say, here's what you should do. And I love what Paul does, because Paul doesn't even address it. He just says, here's what you need to be focused on. This is who you need to be focused on. And he takes all of these verses, and he just pours on who Jesus is and all the beautiful things that he's done for us. And essentially, he's saying to the church, Here's the knowledge that you are to be armed with. This is what you should believe. This right here. This should be preeminent. You see, what we believe, it matters a lot, church. What we believe matters a lot. Do you realize that? Where we put our faith the information that we, that we listen to, the information that we receive into our lives, the news we watch, the stuff we process, the things that we allow our mind and our, our, our eyes to see and our minds to process, our ears to hear, it matters a lot. And we jeopardize what we believe and how we live when we allow the truth of God's word to be exchanged for the philosophy of the day and the philosophy of the world and the culture of the day. We jeopardize ourselves when we begin to exchange the truth of God's word with something that the world tells us. So listen, what you believe matters. Paul was not saying that that knowledge was unimportant. In fact, what we believe is wildly important. And what we believe about God is vital. It's vital. It sets the stage for everything. In fact, what we believe about God determines what we do with our lives. You see, what you believe about God really is, is going to determine how you live. What I believe about God is going to determine how I live. And so what we believe, the knowledge that we're armed with, it is wildly important for us to get this right. And so Paul lays out with amazing grace and amazing truth this this factual, truthful 
knowledge of who Jesus was. And the fact is that he is God. And in just those few verses, he begins to pull apart the philosophy that the Gnostics were trying to infiltrate in the church. You know what Paul's real problem was? Is his real problem was is that he was concerned that the people he was writing this letter to wouldn't see it until it's too late. And I think that's true for us too. That you and I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's too late. We're already going to be too far gone before we realize that we've bought into something that the world has says is right that is absolutely directly opposed to what the gospel says, to what Jesus said, to how we're supposed to live, to the word that God has given us. It's kind of a slippery slope, knowledge is. We feed ourselves with all of these things that may sound better than the word of God, or we take the word of God, and we pick and choose what we like, and we throw out the rest. And the problem with that is, is it's a slow burn. It's like the frog in the pot of boiling water. You've heard that illustration before. I've probably used it before. If you boil a pot of water and throw a frog in, what's going to happen to the frog? He's going to jump out right at you. You're done cooking for the rest of your life, all right? But if you put the frog in water and then boil it and begin to turn the temperature up slowly over time, the frog boils. And that's what happens to our faith, church. That's what happens to our faith, Christ follower. When we, when we allow these other isms and these other beliefs and these other things and the stuff that we put in our mind and into our life, when we allow them to become preeminent over Christ, it may not happen. It probably won't happen overnight. It'll happen over time. And it doesn't matter your age or my age or stage of life. Sorry, I don't think I'm supposed to say age anymore. It doesn't matter our stage of life or where we are in life. We are swimming upstream against culture and it is very, very hard work for us with truth and culture. And so Paul's concern is, is that the people of this town, the people of this city, excuse me, and the believers in that city will begin to question biblical thought, and then they will listen more to worldly thought and worldly philosophies, and then they will begin to deny the truth of the word of God, and then they will entertain cultural practices as normal, and then they will all of a sudden live a life that is counter to the way that God instructed us, to the way that God called us. And you and I, we give into this all the time, myself included. We do. We do. We do it, and we may not even realize it. You know, when I, when I read Colossians, I, I see a group of people, I, I sense a group of people that they are on fire for Jesus. Like, they really, truly love Jesus. Like, if you were to peel the layers of their heart like an onion, what is found deep within is a group of people that are serious about their faith that really love Jesus. But given enough time to believe in all the culture and isms that they are hearing and seeing and reading and studying, 
given enough time, all of a sudden, they're going to be people who are like big for Jesus. Like they want to go to the pep rallies and they want to wear the shirt and the, all, all the bracelets and, you know, give me my HHI thing and let me put my bumper sticker on. Like they want all of the stuff of being a Christ follower, but because they've given in to what they believe, now all of a sudden their lives look nothing like the Christ follower and we can easily, easily, easily slip into the same thing. And Paul says, what should we do? Well, we should focus on Christ. And in verse 15, I love this. I love this church. In verse 15, as he says this, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First of all, he goes back to creation, which I love, all throughout this. And he quotes a lot of things from Genesis right there in the creation story, the story of, of God creating something from nothing, putting the world into place, making humans, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. You've got the fruit. You've got the serpent. You've got them eating the fruit that the one thing they weren't supposed to do, they did. And then you've got fig leaves. They have to cover themselves. And my goodness, there's, he, he, he beckons us back to creation. But the word that he used is so incredibly interesting in verse 15. And it's where I want to land today. It's where I want to finish up today. He is the, say that word with me, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that word image that's used in the original language the word that's used is a word that essentially means icon. Makes sense, right? Is the icon, the image of the invisible God, and it's the same word that's used back in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is trying to be tricked by the religious leaders of the day when they are questioning who you're supposed to worship. Do you worship Caesar? Do you worship the government? Or do you worship God? And they're trying to trick Jesus and in Matthew 22, I love verse 19, it essentially says Jesus knew their evil and he knew what they were trying to do by tricking him. And then this happens, and I love this. Verses 20, uh, uh, Matthew 22, verses 20 through 22. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? As he holds up an ancient coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they, the religious leaders, are trying to trap Jesus they said, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left and they went away. It's the ultimate Jesus mic drop moment. I love it. Just like they're gone. Because Jesus made his point. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. And the word that's used there is that same word. Image. He is the image of the invisible God, the fullness of Jesus Christ. And what is the fullness of Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus in his ultimate fullness? The Gospel of John. John, who wrote the whole Gospel of John, writes about it in John chapter 1. And he talks about Jesus who he was with God in the beginning, that he was there at creation, that he is preeminent. And in John 1.14, he says this. This is the fullness of who Jesus is. The word, that's Jesus. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of, what is this? Grace 
full of truth. Which is really amazing when you think that Paul was dealing with a church that was on the verge of having their faith unravel. He dealt with them as much as he could, as an imperfect person, full of grace and full of truth. You're going to see that theme over and over and over again in Colossians, where Paul not only deals with the church with grace and truth, but that is the instruction for us, is if we are going to live in his image, then we need to act like him in his image, full of grace and full of truth. What's... What is the solution? What's the solution? How, how do I, how do you, how do we keep our focus on the genuine thing? And church, I want you to hear this. And I was incredibly um, convicted by this this week. Our job is not to fill our, our minds with more knowledge. It's not to try to behave a certain way. It's not to try to impress the world with everything that we know and everything that we think. Paul says in Colossians 1.23, he says all of these things, and then he qualifies it. He says, if all these things are true and all these things you ought to do, if indeed you continue in the faith, and then he says this, stable and steadfast. Well, how do we be stable and steadfast? We stay with Jesus. We abide with Jesus. We stay connected to him. John 15, verse 4 says, Abide in me. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Church, that is how we combat. Bind in to the counterfeit belief of life. That's how we defend ourselves against buying into living like the culture of this world. It's not by a harsh attitude about how we should live or how anyone else should live. It's, it's not this idea that I'm doing it wrong or that I'm not doing it right. If we abide in him, we will know the genuine Jesus. If we abide in him and in his word, we will know when the counterfeit arises. If we abide in him and in his word, we will live like the genuine Christ. And that's Paul's message to the Colossians. And it's God's message to me and to you for us today in our world. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to remain steadfast with you. We are swimming upstream, and sometimes, uh, God, our tendency is to read these messages, to hear your word, to study what we've heard, and to poke the person next to us and to think of someone else who needs it. And the fact is, we all need it. We all need it. 
You inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a church that was doing a pretty good job. But you were warning him gently, kindly, and full grace to be careful. And Father, I know that that's the message that you gave me for my life. And I believe the same applies not in just the first century, but in today's world. We must be careful to not let our faith unravel. Father, help us to, to be careful, to be aware, to be looking around, to, to make sure that we're ready. That when we hear that thing that we like better than your word or that we think is more truthful than your word or we feel like we can follow more than your word or it aligns with our wants more than your word. God, help us to not have our faith pull apart. It can happen with one pull of the thread. And Father, I pray for a group of people at Hilton Head Island Community Church that don't combat the things of this world with the law. Paul didn't talk about the law. He didn't talk about rules. He didn't talk about behavior, not yet anyway. He first began with you. And help us, help me to have my eyes fixed on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to have our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the one who came to die for our sins. Help us, oh God, help us to abide in you, to remain steadfast and faithful. Not basing everything on a feeling of the ups and downs of our day or week or year, but faithful to you and your word. Help us, Father, to abide in you who is full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name I pray.